Hey everybody, it is August the 3rd, and I was about to say that time is flying, but that's definitely not true. This has been (laughs) perhaps the single longest year in the history of years, when I think all the way back to January, pre-pandemic, even like all the way back to the death of Kobe Bryant, that now seems like years ago that Kobe died. And uh, today is a big day for me because tomorrow, my book, which you had so much to do with, not just those of you who are listening today for the first time to the podcast, but those of you who have participated in all the campaigns and actions and work that I've been a part of for years, you are all over this book. And uh, I am so grateful and thankful for your support. If you have not yet purchased it, please purchase it today as a pre-order at makechangebook.com. Our goal tomorrow, when the book releases on August the 4th, is to climb all the way up to number one on the book charts. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to need your support with that. So purchase it today or tomorrow. If you purchase it today at makechangebook.com, we have over $200 in bonus items for you that we can't wait to share with you. But now I am about to play an excerpt from the audiobook. And the audiobook has been a labor of love. We have uh, not only guest voices like Bernie Sanders, but so many special guests, including uh, Chuck D, Buster Rhymes, and so many others. I don't even want to ruin the surprise. It's not out yet. And, but I want to play um, about a 15-minute clip of the audiobook of a part of it that's near and dear to my heart. I can't wait for you to read the entire book. The book is equal parts memoir and manifesto. And the part that I want to play for you now is part of me sharing my own story. And I share my story because my story has everything to do with the work that I do in the world. And in the following chapter, I ask you to dig with me into your own story so that we can begin to understand your calling, your life, and your work. Let me play the excerpt. I hope it is not only interesting to you, but I hope you learn something. And uh, I can't wait for you to get the audiobook. Please um, uh, get it from Audible tomorrow. It's special. We worked forever on it and uh, I can't wait for you to actually get the book in your hands I love and appreciate all of you so so grateful for your support here's an excerpt of the audiobook of Make Change I need you to go back in time with me. Before Trump, before Obama, before Twitter, before Google, before Netflix, before text messages, way before all of that, I need you to go back to March 8th of 1995. Apartheid had just ended, and Nelson Mandela was in his first year as president of South Africa. 
Tupac and Biggie were still alive and at the top of their game, and on a random spring afternoon during my sophomore year of high school, everything changed for me. If getting that Facebook message about Eric Garner in July of 2014 altered the trajectory of my adult life, then no single moment in time impacted my young life more than what I'm about to tell you. It almost ruined me. But had it not happened, I'm completely sure my life would have taken a very different path. Let me take you back. Man, look at those stupid rednecks, always messing around and shit. I said to my friend Laron as we glanced at a fight that had just broken out among the future farmers of America. Melees, skirmishes, squabbles, and fisticuffs were far from rare at our rural high school, the one and only in our small factory and farm town of about 8,000 people, Versailles, Kentucky. Some people always had a beef that they wanted to settle and fight through, and on this day, the rural farm boys had clearly had some type of falling out with one another. We chuckled, half glad that it had nothing to do with us for a change. Woodford County High School was a pressure cooker of racial violence and tension, an environment where bigotry was felt on a daily basis. Students wore Confederate flag paraphernalia. Racial slurs were regularly dropped in conversation. I hate niggers was written on the bathroom stalls of our school so frequently that we didn't even report it. It was just the norm. And while the general atmosphere of racism and bigotry was present for all black students, I almost immediately became a target for this violence. Within the first few weeks of my freshman year, I was threatened and harassed, called a nigger and a coon, and had a jar of tobacco spit thrown directly in my face. It hadn't always been this way for me. I had been a popular bridge builder between classmates of different races and backgrounds in middle school, but Woodford County High School put the brakes on all of that quick, fast, and in a hurry. To be exposed to this level of vitriol was shocking, to say the least. Raised by a sweet, single white woman who made light bulbs at the local Sylvania factory, I never had the talk that black families, out of sheer necessity, must give to their children about how to walk, talk, shop, drive, and breathe in a world that often deems them a threat because of the color of their skin. Even though I had been born of an interracial relationship in 1978 and had been told that I was mixed since I was seven years old, my mother, for all intents and purposes, raised me as racially and ethnically ambiguous. We just didn't talk about race, ever. Growing up in my mother's house, I knew as much about the concepts of race, racism, and being biracial in the American South as I did about roofing, mechanics, or Mozart. You could say my racial IQ was only slightly higher than those of children in most white households, which is to say it was pretty damn low. Today at my dinner table, on an average car ride with my wife and five kids, we talk about race, racism, police brutality, injustice, black history, black excellence, black girl magic, black boy joy, hair length and texture and type and health, skin tone, black-owned businesses, whether or not 
singing gospel will get Kanye an invite back to the cookout, and a thousand other quintessentially black topics. Our kids know the stories of Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, and Trayvon Martin as if they were related to them. They know the reasons why we hear so much about Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, but so little about the more radical turn his speeches took during the last six years of his life. They know that Malcolm X smiled every day, and yet there is a reason why we only see pictures of him with a scowl. If I ask them what rappers' names start with K or J, Kendrick and J. Cole would come out instantly. They know the threats and odds they are up against, not just in society, but out on the street or in school on an average day. And all of that's not just because they are children of an activist. This is the norm for all black families. Even though my understanding of racism and bigotry was limited as a child, I am so grateful for the black families in Versailles who took me under their wing and helped me to understand my own identity. Before they started teaching me about the horrible racist history of my hometown, I was lovingly introduced to the richness and beauty of black culture from inside of black homes, churches, barbershops, and family reunions. The families of Justin Lane, Monty Berry, Lionel Morton, Stephen Searcy, Corey Green, Gary Carter, Teresa Brooks, Emmett Murphy, Kim Bradshaw, and so many more welcomed me with open arms as a young boy who sometimes struggled to find his way. When black or multiracial children grow up in white homes, the village regularly steps in to fill the gaps. These environments introduced me to certain foods, smells, words, jokes, tones, rhythms, moves, textures, and terms of endearment that I had never been exposed to before. At first, I felt like a welcome guest, but then as the months and years went on, I knew that this was me. Sean, baby, you have to let us cut your hair. That's a white boy haircut. I remember my friend Lionel's older sister telling me that one time. It wasn't meant as a diss. She was looking out for me. I was 12 years old. You have to put this in it, she said, showing me a small circular orange tin can with a thick waxy hair grease in it called Murray's Superior Hairdressing Pomade. I used it for years before finally upgrading to Sportin' Waves. A white person has never touched my hair since. By late elementary school and throughout junior high, I openly considered myself not mixed, not biracial, but black, as did my peers, my teachers, and counselors. Curiously, my racial identity didn't seem to matter to anyone. It just wasn't a big deal. In fact, until I reached high school, not a single thing in my life suggested that society would ever put any limits on me. I hadn't known about the violent and turbulent history of my town, the backdrop for all of the racist actions that I'd eventually confront on a daily basis. I'd later come to learn that Versailles had an ugly past, rife with both slavery and lynching. It was a tiny place, mainly composed of farmland for tobacco, but in 1850, a staggering 6,374 enslaved Africans 
were forced to live in Woodford County, nearly outnumbering all white people. The Civil War and the abolition of slavery wrecked the economy of Versailles, which had been reliant on free, forced labor, and white people had been pissed about it ever since. I was just 15 years old when I got my hands on a dusty library book called Racial Violence in Kentucky. It was then that I first learned that during the height of Reconstruction, when African Americans were gaining power all across the country, white militias and lynch mobs targeted and killed black folk right there in my hometown to stop their social progress. James Parker and William Turpin, two influential black political leaders in Versailles, faced this awful fate in 1870. One August evening, Parker's home was surrounded by an angry white mob. Told that he and his family would be killed if he didn't open the door, Parker was shot to death the second he complied. The same mob then moved on to surround the home of Parker's friend, William Turpin. As he attempted to escape out of a back window of his home, Turpin was shot and instantly killed. These men weren't even accused of any nonsense crimes like whistling at white women. They were just influential and black in a small town where those two words together just weren't accepted. The murders were so horrific that the governor of Kentucky at the time, John Stevenson, went as far as to denounce them offering a reward and demanding that the white men who committed the crimes be held responsible. And yet nothing was done. No charges were brought. And when it was clear that local officials would not protect black people in Versailles, scores of families, both black and white, fled the lawless town. In the wake of these murders, other local black leaders received letters saying that they would be next if they didn't leave the town or cease organizing. And yet, even as the black people who stayed in town kept to their own business, the violence continued. In August of 1890, a black farmer named John Henderson was lynched on the edge of town. Decades later, in 1921, another black man named Richard James was handed over to an angry white mob by the local jailer in Versailles. And then he was lynched and hung from a tree just about half a mile from my high school. As with the murders of James Parker and William Turpin, Versailles leaders refused to hold anyone accountable. It was the town's way when it came to racial injustice. These open and public murders of black men by angry white mobs struck deep, lasting fear into the dwindling black community in Versailles. Dozens of prominent black families packed up and left and moved to nearby cities like Lexington or Louisville and Cincinnati, taking their businesses with them. Those who stayed behind understood the dire consequences of ever being perceived as rocking the boat. Elders in Versailles have since told me of crosses being burned in their yards and of the ever-present threat of racial intimidation that lingered all the way through my own childhood. But as a kid, I knew none of this. I didn't realize that there was a backdrop to my town's history demanding that certain racial codes be followed 
or dire consequences could be faced. When I proudly and confidently strolled into school on the first day of my freshman year, I had no idea that my identity alone would be enough to be considered problematic. Not only did I see myself as black, but every one of my best friends was black. My girlfriend was black. And my white friends whom I grew up with saw me as black. So when I arrived at high school and sat at the black table in the cafeteria and continued to hang out with my black friends, I didn't even give it a second thought. That was a problem, apparently. My very presence seemed to annoy some of the older white students at the school who did not know me or my story. In the best-case scenario, I confused them. But many racist white students, all of them complete strangers to me, were flat-out irritated that someone they perceived to be white had so flippantly broken unspoken racial codes by sitting at the black table and chilling at the black hangout locations around the school. It never once occurred to me that someone across the cafeteria or passing me in the hallway would look at me and wonder why I had the nerve to break convention. But in truth, I wasn't breaking convention at all. I was just being myself. Within days, older white students who looked like grown men would deliberately push me in the hallways, sometimes knocking my books out of my hands or even knocking me all the way down. A week in, all of my books were removed from my locker and thrown in trash cans throughout the school. The administration essentially shrugged when I went to complain about it. I had never been a bully or been bullied a single day in my life. I was a confident kid, but these aggressions shook me. I was equal parts embarrassed, frustrated, and mortified. And with each diss or bump or stare, I retreated into a cocoon of fear, anger, and humiliation. I was 13 years old one of the youngest people in the entire school, and weighed only about 115 pounds. I didn't know how to defend myself, and I didn't know whom to turn to for help. Three weeks into my freshman year of high school, I did something simple that I honestly thought was for the greater good, but that soon sent my life spiraling out of control. Listen, that's all I think I'm probably allowed to play. <laughs> Thank you, Audible, for even allowing me to do that. Uh, Audible has been a great partner in uh, publish, publishing and, and producing the audiobook. Also, a major, major shout out to uh, my friend and brother Willis, who is the producer of this podcast and was uh, the senior producer of the audiobook. Um, if you have not yet pre ordered, the book Make Change, please do so today at makechangebook.com. And if you're listening to this after the, the pub date, please go get it and leave a really great review. All right. 
I love and appreciate all of you. Thank you so much for your support. I've got to get to work. Uh, these next few weeks uh, are going to be crazy busy, but I'm glad to be doing it with you. Love you all. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody. Hey, everybody. If you love the Breakdown podcast, I don't know if you knew this, but we have two other amazing podcasts that I would argue might be even better than the Breakdown. Right now, if you go to your favorite podcast player, you can search for Sick Empire, which is our podcast about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic in New York. Or you can go to my brand new podcast with my wife, Ray, called Married to the Movement, where we just tell our story, not just about how we met each other and fell in love, but what it means to lead and be married together in this movement for civil rights and human rights. So check out Sick Empire. Check out Married to the Movement. Leave great reviews. Subscribe and let us know what you think. Check them out. Break it down.